Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna, and me, Frederick. This week, I speak with Ellie Ben Sasson about the latest at Starkware Industries, the booming zero knowledge research space, and the origin of new mathematical ideas. Before we start, I want to let you know about an event that we are going to be hosting next month. On October 26th, we're hosting the fourth edition of the Zero Knowledge Summit. This is happening right before the San Francisco Blockchain Week and about two weeks after DevCon. We're going to be bringing together the latest research and ideas around zero knowledge proofs, ZK snarks, universal trusted setups, and all the new research that's coming out about how to make that more versatile and efficient. We're going to be talking about Starks, Bulletproofs, and way more. In this edition, we will be looking at zero knowledge for privacy, zero knowledge for scalability, as well as scratching the surface of an emerging use case that is zero knowledge proofs for interoperability. Applications to attend are currently open, so please apply today. I will add the link in our show notes. Just note, there are limited spots and the event is highly technical. We will be prioritizing the researchers and devs already working in the space, but get your application in early for a better chance of getting a ticket. If you don't get a spot, don't worry, we will be filming it and sharing it on our YouTube channel, which is a thing, which you may not know, but yeah, check out our YouTube channel. I'll also add the link to that in our show notes. You can keep an eye on our Twitter account at Zero Knowledge FM for more details about the event or join in the conversation with our community on Telegram. So very much looking forward to this edition. Hope to see you there. So now here's our interview with Ellie Ben Sasson from Starkware. So today I'm sitting down with Ellie Bensasson from Starkware. Welcome to the show again, Ellie. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> so this is the second time that Ellie is on the show. We did an episode in January where we actually talked about Starkware, Starks, and about Ellie's background and how he got into it. Um, so this is a bit of a catch-up. I guess maybe just start off, what's happened since we last spoke? Wow, so a lot has happened. Starkware now has a product that we're very happy with, which is going to be a scalability engine for uh, trading and for settlement. Um, we'll be launching it hopefully early 2020 at the latest. We're also advancing on our Stark-friendly hash selection, which is a project we promised the Ethereum Foundation to uh, lead. And um, there is so much going on in our team in terms of science and, and, and engineering. And uh, so, yeah, a lot of fun. So this interview is coming off the back of the Starkware sessions and the Starks 101 workshop here in Tel Aviv. Um, I want to talk, like, maybe just to kick off about that. So what were those and what, why did you decide to do an event like that? Yeah, so we had two events. Um, the first one was Stark 101. It was a hands-on workshop uh, where folks came in, sat with a Jupyter notebook that our team um, created, led by one of our engineers, Shiel, and they came out with a full-blown Stark prover for a very specific computation. 
The reason we did this is we want to educate about the beauty of, of uh, Starks. And this was aimed at developers and programmers. The following day, we held Starkware sessions where there were two main themes. The first one was how do ZK Starks fit in the larger uh, ecosystem of uh, proof systems and uh, cryptography and blockchains. And the second theme was applications. How does Starkware and its products fit into the larger ecosystem of uh, blockchains and uh, what is the value proposition uh, of our system and others? All right, so let's talk about the updates from Starkware. Um, you mentioned a few of them, but let's go a little deeper into them. The first one, as, as I understand, is the scalability, the DEX work that you've done. Um, have you actually released a DEX of your own? We have not released a DEX of our own, and we view ourselves more as technology providers for a backend of, of existing exchanges, both uh, centralized exchanges and decentralized ones. So we would like to pr provide um, engines that at the first stage do uh, things like uh, settlement at scale. Earlier this year, around July, we announced uh, and released uh, our alpha, StarkDex. This was a joint project with Zero X, in which we displayed um, a scaling up of uh, settling a thousand trades um, in each batch at a sustained rate of 10 TPS, 10 transactions per second. And now what we're doing, and this will be released on, on mainnet by early 2020, is we are building settlement engines at scale for non-custodial trading that will be um, back-end engines used by custodial exchanges that want to enlarge their liquidity pool and offer it also to traders that don't want to hand custody over to them. So this is uh, the next step along that project of uh, Stark Exchange. We're working already with uh, multiple exchanges. Um, famously, Coinbase has announced already that they're working with us on this and allowing uh, their liquidity pool also to non-custodial traders. So... That's the news on Stark Exchange. Okay, let's talk then next about the Ethereum grant and the hash function work that you're doing. And it's interesting, I, we, when we had you on before, I know that we mentioned the grant, but I don't know that we actually went into what was in the grant. Right. And so that might be good to clarify. Okay, yeah. So the Ethereum Foundation granted us uh, a sizable grant. At the time, it was the largest uh, that they granted. Um, the, the goal of this grant was to provide the Ethereum Foundation and its developer ecosystem with uh, very efficient provers and verifiers for Starks for repeated invocations of uh, a hash function. And one of the main goals of this grant was to recommend to the Ethereum Foundation uh, a Stark-friendly hash. At first, we thought that we'll just you know, scan the list of existing hash functions and select one of them. But quickly we realized that there's a better way that would be better for the community, which is to actually solicit new constructions of hash functions that optimize um, the parameters needed for them to be Stark friendly. And by now we have already two new suggestions that can be added to one pre-existing one, which is uh, MIMSI. 
And we funded, uh, again, with funds from the grant that we received, we funded uh, both of these efforts. Mm. We also funded a cryptanalytic effort to understand these uh, new constructions from the point of view of uh, algebraic cryptanalysis and Grebner basis algorithms, which are very relevant and important to these new constructions. And uh, we're progressing along. So the next main step is going to be uh, we're convening a, a committee of expert in symmetric cryptanalysis led by Professor Anne Canton. It will be held in Paris mid-November. This uh, committee will uh, you know, examine the various constructions and recommend by early 2020 uh, the one Stark-friendly hash. And then we have, Starker has roughly half a year to code it up, write an efficient prover and verifier, uh, run audits on it, and then release the code to the Ethereum Foundation. When when doing this kind of like finding a new hash, would that automatically work within the current Ethereum construction, or would you need to do something to actually enable that? Some of the hash constructions would work pretty well already on the existing Ethereum uh, framework. And for instance, we actually are running now a Stark-friendly hash challenge where there's a bunch of smart contracts that pay out Ether to those who find the collision in some of these candidates. So, by the way, just uh, as it was very funny that exactly as the session on the Stark-friendly hash function selection was going on, we were alerted that the very first collision in one of these challenges was found. Oh, cool. And uh, one ether will be handed out to the uh, solver, the, find, the first finder of this collision. So the smart contracts that we wrote for this competition are already existing as smart contracts on Ethereum. Now, there are other constructions, especially those that are based on binary fields that are much harder to implement over Ethereum right now. But I'm guessing that the Ethereum Foundation, once there is a selected uh, Stark-friendly hash, the Ethereum Foundation probably will uh, want to consider doing some consensus chain to allow you know, a pre-compile for it or add it to the existing hashes that it already allows, like Ketchuk. But this is really... You know, not part of our project. This is up to the Ethereum Foundation to decide afterwards. Mm. How do you define what a good, like, what are you looking for? Is like, wh how do you choose between hash functions? That, that's a great question. As always, the, the most important aspect would, of course, be security, because if the hash function isn't really collision resistant or doesn't look uh, pseudorandom enough, then, then it's no use. But having said that, there are some very specific algebraic um parameters that you would like to minimize if you're interested in making it stark friendly and those parameters if i had to you know summarize them they would be about making so suppose you want to implement your hash using an arithmetic circuit an arithmetic circuit is a sequence of operations that allows only things like additions multiplications divisions what you want to do is minimize the number of operations that take the input to the output, right? A hash takes an input and then produces an output. So if you have two hash functions and one of them has uh, a thousand operations and the other one has a hundred operations, the second one would be more stark friendly than the first. It's slightly more complicated than that, but this is roughly uh, the idea of it. The problem is that as you decrease the number of arithmetic operations, you're also... Um, 
maybe compromising security because maybe it's just too simple a function. For instance, if you just take the two inputs and multiply them, then that's not a good hash function. You probably want to do a whole bunch of operations. So that's the tension between maintaining security and minimizing the number of operations needed to compute it. When you minimize the number of operations, does it make it faster? Yes, it makes it faster, definitely. Okay. It makes it uh, it makes proving statements about it more efficient, which is one of the main goals of being stark friendly. At the same time, it makes it more susceptible to all kinds of attacks, and the most potent ones seem to be the ones that are based on um, algebraic geometry and things uh, called uh, Grebner basis and uh, algebraic cryptanalysis. Those are the ones that are new and most uh, threatening to, mm -hmm. to this kind of minimization effort. Curious, where where is most of the hash function research happening? Like, where is that? Is it in other fields? Is it in the field of cryptography in various universities? That's a great question, and and I learned a lot as I as as I was going into this project because my upbringing is not as one of these experts. I come from a very different field of computer science. So within cryptography, so I learned, there's a sub-branch that would be described as symmetric cryptography, as opposed to asymmetric cryptography, you know, public key cryptography, RSA, Diffie-Hellman, that sort of stuff, and, and which is very algebraic and number theoretic. That lives in the asymmetric. Right, that's yeah. the asymmetric world, uh, a lot of number theory, a lot of elliptic curves, uh, that kind of stuff. Now within the symmetric uh, key cryptography, where you have things like AES, and you have uh, the hashes, and a bunch of digital signatures as well, post-quantum ones, and so on. Um, there's a very vibrant community. I should say, I realized that, I learned that most of it is in Western Europe. So Paris, Belgium, Germany, uh, oh. Luxembourg, those places, it's a very, uh, it's a very uh, hot topic. And a lot of the experts uh, reside there. And these are in the cryptography departments of universities, or are they in industry? Um, more so in uh, in in academia. Okay. But also, you know, some of them consult or go back and forth, or also are in uh, um, industry. Is there like I'm just wondering, like the sort of the the call out to an open source community looking for hashes? Like, what are you are you also pinging the people in the university or are they already aware of this? Like, are they already kind of participating in a lot of these ecosystems? The, the people we reached out to are the kinds that are already doing this for a living for a very long time. So one of the first teams we, I guess the very first team we contracted is uh, the COSIC team at Leuven in Belgium oh, yeah. uh, that is led by uh, Vincent Reimann, who is actually one of the co-inventors of the AES symmetric cipher. And his team is, uh, so in particular, Simon de Hugge and Tomer Ashur uh, have led this effort of uh, suggesting one of the constructions. So, and, and this whole community of researchers, they engage often in a lot of competitions about selecting and building new hash functions and new ciphers, um, I, I learned that that's a lot of what they do, and so so this is not new to them. Cool. This kind of work. Hmm. What like who do they usually work with? Like they're not usually working. They're not exclusively working with blockchain stuff. I imagine. Uh, what like what world is that? 
I think, and I may be wrong here, so so my, I hope my you know friend symmetric cryptographers will forgive me if I'm making huge errors here. But I think that often, first of all, a lot of uh, industries often need um, you know various, let's say, you know low consumption uh, new hash functions or. Uh, signature schemes or ciphers. There are a lot of government solicitations coming out from uh, NIST and uh, various other uh, international standardization bodies. So I think a lot of those are routinely interacting with them. And you could say that you know the Ethereum Foundation is you know could be thought also of, as one such, uh, or it will be. I mean, any blockchain governance is also a standardization body for this particular blockchain. So it's it's. It's kind of in the same ballpark of the stuff they've been doing already. Mm, cool. Yeah, so going back to the actual project, is it a, because this competition, this is about finding like a collision, so almost like breaking a hash. Yes. But the other side is this like evaluation. Yeah. How far are you? Do you have a, do you have a favorite? <laughs> no, I don't have a favorite. Um, I, I want to be, or we at Starker want to be agnostic. We hope that it will be uh, secure. That's very important. The worst thing that could happen is if something is selected and then actually a lot of stuff is built using it and trusting its uh, security. And then a lot of economic value is already sort of hinged to it. And then someone says, oops, you know, uh, mm. here's a collision or here's a bug. That would be very unfortunate. So it's very important that, that we remain, you know, agnostic as to who... Uh, who, who wins? So, like, um, but will there be one hash function at the end of this that is? There will be at or? least one, definitely. Okay. But there hopefully. may be a, a basket of hash functions. Yeah, I th I, I'm guessing that what will happen is that the experts, when they convene in mid-November, will sort of uh, you know sit and really try to kick uh, the tires of these things and sort of pull and push and try all kinds of uh, attacks. And it's a bit of an art. Uh, and understand like understanding what works or what makes mm. you comfortable or less and it's an art i i only observe from the outside it's not something that i practice in or have intuition about which is why others are going to be selecting it so i think they'll end up by saying i mean there could be a, a few outcomes they could say they could come out and say look all of them look pretty safe to us so so then it's basically up to starkware to find which mm -hmm. one is the most efficient in terms of it's a stark complexity um it could also be that they will come out and say look uh you know here's one or two that we think are far safer based on a whole variety of reasons and uh then we'll probably build those hmm. so what's next for starkware so starkware is a a bit of a unique creature in blockchain uh space we are a for-profit company nevertheless what we deal with is is can be viewed as part of something that could be infrastructure. And there are not too many other companies like us. So we're constantly thinking about what next. So right now we're very, very happy with our first business model, which is Prover as a service, which means we're releasing a verifier on-chain that verifies uh, the evolution of a very scalable system. And we keep the prover, the super efficient provers, close sourced and run a service that we offer to uh, exchanges that work with us. We're very happy with uh, exploring this business model and we hope to get our customers using it uh, early 2020. Beyond that, 
I mean, immediate steps are going to be to, you know, validate this business model to enlarge the capabilities of uh, the Stark Exchange system to sign up uh, more customers. So those of you listening out there, if you're running an exchange and you expect significant volume in non-custodial trading, you know, please reach us, out to us. Uh, we also want to enlarge the same prover-as-a-service mechanism to things like payment systems. Uh, we can scale up to tens of thousands of payments being verified within a single Ethereum block today. And we'd very much like to work with uh, payment providers and payment processors to offer this functionality, also under the prover-as-a-service model. Later on, we're exploring how to engage the developer community a bit more and offer uh, what we call B2D tools, so mm -hmm. business-to-developer tools, so that we can uh, um, have a more vibrant community of developers that use uh, Starks and build their own uh, statements and uh, systems. And um, I guess that's pretty much what's right now on our mind. What kind of future, like the company, you just sort of mentioned, it's a for-profit company. What do you imagine it evolving into? Like, have you looked at a lot of those companies that work around open source? Do you see yourself becoming like a, I don't know, like a service provider for an open source protocol? Like, how do you envision this company? Wow, that's a really... Uh, it's a bit future. <laughs> that, that's a really... Yeah, making predictions is very hard, especially concerning the future. Let's see, what can can I you know, comfortably uh, say um, and not eat my hat uh, you know, in a few years? We very much believe that uh, Starks are going to be uh, used uh, in a whole lot of places in blockchains first and then also in the financial ecosystem at large in the end. And we very much believe and will strive to be one of the main providers of this technology. Now, the way we might end up, let's say in five years time or maybe 10 years time, we could be something like, uh, you know, this is very long range. We, couldn't, we could end up being something like, you know, NVIDIA or Intel where we sell hardware and we sort of release a whole lot of tools that, that make working with this hardware very efficient. That's one long-term option. We could be the analog of some cloud provider or service provider that basically runs these big servers for super efficient uh, um, proving and um, you know also releases and supports a vibrant uh, open source community that that develops other things and and uh, you know those comfortable uh, building their own proving systems and so on could could will work with without us. That's a second option. Um, a third option, and this sort of ties into what blockchain governance might might decide, would be to partner uh, somehow with with existing blockchains to offer uh, this infrastructure at a more lower level um, in return for some form of, uh, you know, I'd say at least limited exclusivity or something. So uh, this model that is used in infrastructure building called the BOT model build, operate, transfer, uh, which is often used with when, when governments and countries build, uh, you know, bridges or other things comes to mind where, and, and here, this is not only about Stark, or this is in general about how do blockchains want to uh, foster a thriving private sector that builds infrastructure. So think about wallets. Um, I would like to see blockchains coming to wallet providers and saying, let's now run an auction 
for we need three wallet providers that will be sort of open sourced over the next uh, you know for the next five years and um, the winners based on price and quality and whatnot will be given sort of a license to offer their uh, uh, software and they will get maybe rewarded as part of the uh, mining reward of the process and after this uh, period uh, you know the governance will find a new system or run a new auction I think this uh, this this you know would benefit the ecosystem so that's another option that maybe we become part of the infrastructure layer um, in some place or other. Okay, so now what I'd really like to touch on is something you brought up in your presentation at Starkware Sessions. And that was about sort of the, we've all we're all noticing this, but this explosion of new papers, new protocol ideas, kind of new angles to solve some of the problems that zero knowledge proofs are trying to, to solve. What do you make of this? So I think this is great news for, for the whole space. Uh, we called it the Cambrian explosion of ZKPs because the Cam Cambrian explosion was this era in, in you know, geology or the history of the earth where all of a sudden from this primordial soup of microbes uh, within a very short period of time, a huge number of uh, animals and, and plants emerged uh, about uh, half a billion years ago. So... ZKPs and, and proof systems in general have been around theoretically since the 80s, mid-80s, ever since uh, this amazing discovery by Goldwasser and uh, Mikali and Rakoff in 1985. And they've been the playground of theoretical cryptographers for a very long time. Starting a few years ago, about five or so, uh, they started being deployed and now there's this uh, boom, this big explosion. And it's like in the last month, it's gotten pretty wild. Yeah, a lot of uh, <laughs> papers are coming out and announcements and, you know, uh, so it's, it's terrific. That's really great. Being somebody who comes from academia, when you see a new paper, like, is there, is it such that you release a paper into the world and then there are dedicated researchers who really know the stuff who go into it? Or is it kind of like, if it's popular enough, you're going to get some attention? I'm just wondering how that works, because obviously in universities, it's really formalized. Things have changed even in universities. So when I started doing my research 25 years ago, even though the internet was around, you didn't have uh, archives where you can just upload papers. So the process was... Uh, very structured, maybe too structured, meaning that um, the only way for your paper to be known was for it to be published in, in some journal or in a conference proceedings. For that to happen, you had to send it. Again, there were no uh, archives just to upload it, so you had to send it. And then it went through a peer review process, which was far from perfect in both false positive and false negative. So sometimes it admitted papers that were later found to have you know, bugs Problems. in them. Mm. And the other way around, sometimes really amazing papers were not accepted. For instance, a very famous example is that the very first paper on zero-knowledge proofs was rejected, I think, from three conferences <gasps> till it was published. Was that the one in 1985? 
Is yeah, that why there's one in 1989? Well, no, uh, that's the uh, that's the uh, sort of the journal version of it. Okay. But but what happened? I mean, and this paper famously won you know a bunch of awards, including the Turing Award and the Gettle Award. Again, the peer review process always had and always will have some you know false positives and false negatives. This was let's say up to 20 years ago. Um, now with the abundance of like online publishing venues, what happens is that is that you just need uh, you know to write something up and you can immediately post it. An extreme case of this that everyone saw was clearly problematic is, of course, the notion of a white paper that comes along with an ICO of some mm-hmm. shitcoin, right? So there might be even some mathematical formulas in it, but you know this is clearly uh, not something you want to do anything with. So now with this uh, abundance of uh, immediate publishing uh, venues... Um, there is, of course, this, uh, on the one side, it's really, really good because, uh, you can immediately get your ideas out there. For instance, more people, I guess, can get their ideas out there. You don't have to be part of some institution. Even this guy who no one heard about, like by the name of Satoshi Nakamoto can just publish a paper that (laughs) happens to be pretty important. Um, there's also, of course, the danger that comes with it that, uh, you know, you might just very quickly associate a lot of credibility to uh, a paper that is in PDF format and you can print and maybe even has uh, formulas in it. So I think it's a better way that we now can publish things immediately. And uh, peer review was never perfect, Mm. but we should at the very least, you know, make sure that the T's are crossed and I's are dotted and, and have some experts look at, at, at papers and sort of opine on them and, and, mm. and ensure that, uh, you know, have another set of eyes on the ball so that uh, things don't fall or break. With so many um, new papers and ideas and acronyms coming at us, like what, what is like the danger and maybe like how should we navigate this? I would say that, uh, okay, the abundance of new ideas and new acronyms is, is actually very good, but we should proceed with caution. So I think what I mean, let science move at its pace, which should be as fast or as slow as, as science and scientists move. Let the scientists have enough time to sort of cross the T's, dot the I's, feel comfortable with what they're publishing. Let the scientific community have its time to look at things and peer review it and evaluate it. And proceed with caution, especially if you want to, you know, we're all eager to have, like, you know, the latest and greatest technology at our disposal. Um, When it comes to things that are based on cryptography, an advanced one at that, you really have to sort of balance that with the um, desire to future-proof your system Mm. and not just be out there as quickly as possible, but Mm. be sure that you are preserving your customers or your users' assets for the longest possible time in the safest possible way. It sounds like it comes down to trust. It's the long-term trust of the system that you should be aiming for and not first market. 
Yes, the long-term trust, the soundness of the foundations. Yeah. This uh, we we should always remember. We're building an infrastructure that will have trillions of dollars of value flowing on it. It's far more important to be sure that the foundations are solid than to um, make it as fast as possible or have it out there as fast as possible. Cool. So I'm really, I'm really glad that we talked about that because we are experiencing right at this moment an explosion, as mentioned. So there's in the last month or two months, it's just like, it's awesome. But there are new papers dropping from like really established teams um, and kind of introducing all these new ways to think about these problems. In your presentation at the Starcore Sessions event the other day, um, you actually outlined, you, you helped me at least map out what's going on. Like where do those different protocols live? So how would you break down this landscape? Okay, so the categories I was referring to are related to the basic cryptographic assumptions that underlie uh, the different ZKPs that we see emerging. And there are three types of, of, of such assumptions. The, the newest and the one that was deployed, for instance, in, in Zcash comes from this family of knowledge of exponent assumptions, and which is a cryptographic assumption that, that started being used in the aughts and then gets... Uh, redefined and uh, with, with some new variants of it uh, with almost every new paper. The second family of constructions, which relies on assumptions that are a bit older, um, those are constructions based on elliptic curve, uh, discrete log problem. Uh, I guess the most famous one from this family is the bulletproof system that's deployed in Monero. And these cryptographic assumptions go back to the 80s, uh, up to the aught. And the third family, to which uh, Starks belong, along with other systems such as Aurora, Ligero, and Zikaboo, to mention a few, relies on the cryptographic assumption of a collision-resistant hash. And this assumption has been around since the mid-1970s. Mm. And the reason I was talking about these three different categories of, of proof systems relates to their future proofness because the more fundamental a cryptographic assumption is used and the longer it's been around and the more other stuff that is tied to it, uh, the safer it is considered. So knowledge of exponent assumptions have an economy of roughly half a billion dollars, uh, the Zcash system. What, what else is in there? What other kind of protocols are in the knowledge of exponent? So systems that we know of by now that, that require such assumptions are things like Sonic and Planck. Those are very recent constructions. They, they require knowledge of exponent assumptions. And SNARKs, do they fall in there as well? Yeah, the SNARKs used by Zcash, yes. Uh, SNARK has also a more general definition that, ah, that yeah. can incorporate other things. But usually when people talk about SNARKs, they refer to the ones in Zcash. And, and that definitely... So, Snarks, uh, Sonic, and Planck uh, come from this family. Okay. So this is a rather recent family. It has roughly half a billion dollar worth of an economy around it. If you look at the elliptic curve discrete log problem, it has in it things like Bulletproof and uh, possibly uh, Halo and Supersonic, uh, depending. When I say possibly, it's because the exact cryptographic assumptions are not 
quite completely spelled out uh, in all of these things, but it looks like it requires uh, only elliptic curve discrete log and, and pairings as well. And these assumptions go back a little bit further uh, to the, again, uh, 20 years earlier or so. And uh, there's a bit more of an economy built on them, things like uh, certain forms of SSL key exchange and identity-based cryptography. And uh, then the third family to which uh, our Stark system, so, so just like SNARK, Starks are a bigger definition, but they're typically associated with a very particular implementation. So I'm referring to that. So it uses uh, hashes, which have been around since the very early days of cryptography, uh, the mid-70s, and basically all of e-commerce and uh, you know all of the internet infrastructure security relies on at least such an assumption. So that's why... We at Starkworth think uh, this is the safest and most uh, future-proof ready uh, system. Do these distinctions have anything to do with being post-quantum secure? Or is that a different category completely? So it's known since the uh, breakthrough of uh, Peter Shaw that quantum computers can break um, the discrete log problem. And if you can break the discrete log problem, you can break things like uh, Halo and Bulletproofs and these systems. And you can also break the knowledge of exponent assumptions used by the SNARKs and Sonic and Planck. So if you have a quantum computer, then the two newer families uh, sort of fall down. That's one of the aspects of having a system that is more future-proof. As long as you have a hash function that is post-quantum secure, then there's at least hope for these other family of systems based on interactive oracle proofs and, and similar things. And very recently, there's a very beautiful paper by um, Alessandro Chiesa, who's also one of our, is my co-founder at Starkware, and two colleagues on, on actually proving that in certain models, the quantum random oracle model, um, these systems uh, are uh, actually safe even when you compose them into a non-interactive proof. So there's there's even some some theoretical substantiation of uh, uh, having families based on collision resistant hashes being safe to quantum computers. That's even but that's interesting. So it's like the older cryptography can go further into the future. Yeah. <laughs> Why is that? A... That seems strange, <laughs> no? <laughs> so from a sort of History of science point of view, what happened was that it initially seemed to some that systems based on those older techniques are not as efficient, and people uh. looked for newer ways to get efficient systems. So they looked also at newer cryptographic assumptions. I think the, the, the work that started this was a beautiful paper by two of my colleagues from Technion, uh, Yuval Ishai and uh, Eyal Kushilevitz, along with Rafael Ostrovsky from... UCLA, who basically said, look, if we use things known as additive homomorphic encryption, we can sort of bypass the gnarly parts of uh, the other kind of efficient systems. And, and because of that, you have these newer systems that have more exotic and newer cryptographic assumptions that are also prone to quantum computers. But what um, people have not noticed or now noticing a bit more was that actually we've been making a lot of progress along the earlier kind of route and getting the most efficient systems there that also happen to be post-quantum secure. Mm. There must be so much being shared between these systems too. Like as much as we're outlining them as three unique 
types of zero knowledge, like just in terms of techniques, Definitely. I imagine there's a lot of sharing. Definitely. All of these systems, all of the efficient proof systems use this beautiful technique called arithmetization. It was invented in the early 80s by the great Alexander Razborov, um, uh, an amazing uh, you know, theoretical computer scientist and used to prove circuit low lower bounds in computational complexity. And later were transitioned into the area of proof systems in this beautiful paper by Lund, Karloff, uh, Fortnow, and Nissan. Ah, I think the Ariel Gabizon mentioned this one. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Well, a lot of people mention it, right? <laughs> it's a very important paper that used arithmetization in a new context of generating efficient proof systems. So all of the systems in all of the three trees use some form of arithmetization. And arithmetization is this process of converting a problem about computation into a problem about uh, low-degree polynomials. And uh, then the differences are how do you actually know that your prover is using low-degree polynomials? And here is where the three trees grow and use different techniques. Ah, I see. Is it, do, you, do you force something into that format or is it more of a test as to whether or not it is already in that format? That's a great question. And I think the answer to that... So, <laughs> Do you force your prover to use a low-degree polynomial or do you allow her to do anything but then sort of check uh, whether it's right? it is a low-degree polynomial? The answer to this is exactly what distinguishes the oldest tree from the two newer ones. Because in the oldest tree, the one built on hash functions, the way the system works is you tell the prover, look, you can use whatever you want, but be be aware that we will test and check whether what you're using is really a low-degree polynomial. And that only requires hashes. Whereas in the two newer versions, the one that use uh, elliptic curves and uh, knowledge of exponents, what happens is that there is a bunch of parameters or keys that are used in order to force the prover to necessarily use only a low-degree polynomial. Um, and, and so it's really... The difference between the different trees and, and ways you get zero knowledge is the difference between do you allow anything and then check it or force uh, the prover to use only a very mm. particular kind of representation. Well, that's an interesting way to think about it. Um, in this, so you mentioned like, uh, you know, new or ideas from the 80s that then permeated all of these groups. But are there other, I think I asked you this on the last episode as well, the last one we did together, but I'm curious if... Maybe there's there's new info here since we're deeper in it, but are there other places or um, are you seeing some kind of techniques coming from other worlds, possibly you know outside of of the cryptography used for zero knowledge that are actually entering in and being used across these different types of zero knowledge? Well, all the time you have uh, new ideas coming in, typically from from you know, other fields of mathematics. So for instance, one theme that we already explored in theoretical works, but hasn't really made its way into, uh, into uh, implementations yet is, is the use of generalizations of low degree polynomials, things known as uh, algebraic geometry uh, codes or GOPA codes that have some advantages. Uh, so there's a bunch of works that, 
I and my co-authors have written about the advantages of these things, but they're not yet uh, deployed in any practical uh, setting. I think uh, what we're currently starting to see in some of the talks we had at the Stargore sessions were already exploring this, is, for instance, taking techniques from the collision-resistant hash world, things like fry and deep fry, that, uh, that, that allow you to check if something is a low-degree polynomial, and then importing them into the world of these uh, other systems that use discrete log and so on and so the forth. The newer ones. Yeah, the newer ones. So, and, and I'm sure we'll see a lot more of this sort of uh, mm. moving between different uh, areas and incorporating ideas from one area into the other. I did, I, I think it was through the Starkware 101 workshop or through conversations after where I learned that there is some technique that was taken from FFTs, from fast Fourier transformations, yes. and that was incorporated into FRY. Yes. Let's actually define FRY. So FRY, let's open the yeah. acronym first. So <laughs> the F is FAST. R is Reed solomon which is uh, this family of codes that uses low-degree polynomials. And the I stands for... IOP of proximity. IOP is this model in which uh, you know the uh, sort of the post-quantum secure um, collision-resistant hash-based uh, zkps live. So Fry stands for fast read Solomon IOP. And it is in Stark constructions. Yes, what definitely. Is it, what's its purpose in the construction? It is exactly the way we answer your question about. Uh, how do we know that some function is low degree? Ah. So it is the technique by which we let someone say, here's a Merkle tree that its leaves, if you open them up, they will be an evaluation of a low degree polynomial, which is all we, the only thing we need in order to get all of the zero-knowledge proof systems. That's all we need. We need to know that the prover is using you know, one low degree polynomial in his answers. So Fry is a way to check efficiently if someone has actually done this or if they're cheating. And it uses this this um, technique from FFTs, though. And that's like a... I mean, I know fast Fourier transformations from music signal processing. Right. So very different part of math. Yeah. So... I always okay. I I I had the fortune of teaching, uh, you know, the FFT in in many courses, and uh, m the first thing I say about it is the following: that there are these concepts in math that their power and beauty is in having so many different interpretations and ways of using them. So one of them is things like a matrix or a linear transformation. It is such a powerful. Yeah. Thing. Another one is determinant, which is, you know, it has so many interpretations and meanings and you can generalize it in so many ways. Another one is derivative of a mm. function. You know, at first you learn that it is this angle, then you learn that it is this uh, linear transformation with a whole bunch of properties and, and it, you know, goes on and on. So the Fourier transform is yet another one of those amazing and magical concepts that has... Uh, so many different ways of viewing it and using it. So mm. it's definitely used in signal processing and it's taught as this way to move from one representation to the other, from a time-based uh, representation into a frequency-based one. But it also has um, huge ger generalizations to number theory and group theory and uh, analytic uh, functional analysis and a whole bunch of things. And in particular, it is also 
uh, a concept that is used essentially in all of these proof systems, there will be an FFT somewhere that does uh, something pretty efficiently and it's needed. Mm. So in the SNARKs used in Zcash and in Sonic and in Planck and in uh, other systems, you will have FFTs lurking around. What's new about Fry is that it sort of starts doing an FFT, but then it sort of speeds it up, um, which actually makes uh, the Fry protocol even faster than an FFT in terms of its asymptotic running time. Mm. And it achieves a slightly different goal of knowing that a function is indeed low degree. Is it is Fry something that came out of Starkware industry research or is that something from academia? Where, where's Fry from? So the Fry paper uh, has four co-authors. So one of them is... Uh, so. Myself, Ido Bentov, uh, Inon Chorish, and Michael Ryaptsev. Uh, it was published when we were all in academia. Okay. And um, what has come out of Starkware by now is, is this improvement on it called uh, Deep Fry. Uh, Which that, is a great name, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It, 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 uh, credit goes to our two co-authors, uh, who are also scientific advisors to uh, Starkware, uh, professors uh, Shubangi Saraf and Swasti Koparti. I don't know which one of them came up with the name, but but we agreed that it's a great name. And also Lior Goldberg from uh, from Starkware, uh, together with me, were four co-authors of this uh, new paper. I just want I just want to say that I believe that someday someone will find an improvement, and and I already know what the name will be. It must be a stir fry. <laughs> Right? Because if we have fry and deep fry, <laughs> no, it must be stir fry. Nice. Cool. What what does what does deep fry do exactly? So I don't think we t- we said that actually. So well, it, instead of frying something, it does, you know, it puts it in a lot of oil. <laughs> <laughs> you take away the pan. Yeah, That's exactly. All. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but jokes aside, what deep fry does is it's sort of... Uh, The title of the paper talks about deep fry uh, sampling outside the box. Okay. Which, uh, what happens with, uh, let's say, with fry is you start with uh, a Merkle tree or a commitment to some function that just is sort of a table of evaluations. Let's say, you know, there's one entry for the function's value at the point zero, at the point one, at the point two, let's say up to the point 1000. So you have this big table. This table might look big, but, you know, there are way more entries in the world than just those thousand entries. So previously in Fry, all the queries that we ever did when we were sort of checking whether this is a good low-degree polynomial were always to this domain, to this, let's say, 1,000 entries that the prover committed to. With Deep Fry, we sort of go outside the box and we suddenly start making queries about, let's say, what is the value of this function at the point 1 million, which isn't inside the table. Oh, wow. And this is the main idea that goes into it. And then we incorporate the answers in a way that make the system far more efficient and have better security. What would you call, like, what's comparable, that technique? Is there anything else that you could say does stuff like that? Like, where does that idea come from, even? This idea of sampling outside I don't know. I mean, it comes from where all ideas come from, right? I don't know where they come from. (laughs) No, like, uh, yeah, that's a really good question. (laughs) (laughs) Should we look it up? 
No, I mean, well, it's I, probably it, some. Uh, is there a word for that technique? Well, we call it deep. That's domain extending. <laughs> oh, so we there, extend okay, the domain. Okay. So it's domain extending for eliminating pretenders. But okay. look, we, we needed the word deep somehow. Yeah. So we just needed to open the acronym. <laughs> no, we do extend the domain. And it does eliminate pretenders in a way that I won't go into. It has to do with things called list decoding or pruning a list of contenders. Uh, no, no, but I think the question you're asking about is like, where do mathematical, where do new mathematical ideas come from? So, I, I mean, I confess, I don't know of too many places where this kind of idea was seen before. I'm sure there might be areas, but, but I'm not aware of them, this mm. particular idea. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I always go back to this beautiful paper by Henri Poincaré, where he sort of muses on, on, you know, the nature of mathematical creativity. It's a must read. Everyone must read it. What's the name of the paper? I think it's called, first of all, it was written in French. So, okay. but I know the English translation and the title is, I think it is on the nature of mathematical creativity. So Henri Poincaré, in addition to being this amazing, uh, uh, mathematician and you know the uh, founder of uh, ergodic theory and other things also was you know not all mathematicians can sort of take a step back and and talk about the process of uh, mathematical creativity but he was this rare genius that was also very articulate about it and he mm. has this beautiful um paper that you know every time i read it i get goosebumps because it resonates so much for instance, he talks about this process where, you know, he comes to a problem and he sits for two weeks and thinks about it. And uh, he's working very diligently and very hard, like sitting at his desk eight hours a day, but he's making no progress. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on some vacation or something and he's crossing a bridge. And as he crosses the bridge, like thinking about nothing, suddenly he sees it, right? It's like this solution emerges. And the minute it emerges, he sort of, he doesn't need to write it even. He like sees it in its entirety and like completely understands it. Wow. And then he says, okay, now I just need to write it down. But he sees it completely. And, um, and then he asks, you know, what, what happened here? And he says, well, look, the two weeks I spent on it were not a waste of time. I would never have had this revelation had I not spent that time. Mm -hmm. But what happened in between? I don't know. Like the best description is, I mean, maybe you have this process where you're feeding your subconscious yeah. with all of this work. And then your subconscious sort of connects all kinds of things. And then at some point it sort of floats up back to your consciousness. And then you suddenly see something totally. that you had no idea that you could see. I almost imagine it like you walk down various paths and even though they might seem far away, you're eventually defining a map. I don't know if that's in any way... Uh... It's all about exploring. There's, there's this unknown space. I mean, that's science, right? It's, you know, exploring this unknown space. Now, in mathematics, this unknown space is very abstract, but it is, you know, this unknown world, and you're sort of walking and exploring in your complete darkness. Yeah. And as you're doing so, the amazing thing is that your, I guess your subconscious is some faculty of your brain is doing stuff you're unaware of yeah. and then all of a sudden sometimes like you know you suddenly see stuff so that's i, I mean I, that's the best answer i can give to like you know where do ideas come from i love it that's so good 
So I want to say thank you so much for coming back on the Zero Knowledge podcast and talking to me about all of this. I wish Frederick had been here. Unfortunately, this was a bit of a spontaneous interview. Um, please do come back again. Thank you. I w- uh, gladly and thank you so much for tolerating me yet again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.